Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guests today are coming from an area of London. Barbara, Nick, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Hi, um, I'm Nick. Yeah, I'm Barbara. Hi. Uh, we are State of Nature. Um, we a team of two plus one seamstress. So we're a very tiny workwear studio and we make everything in Hackney. Um, yeah. We've got two workshops. One is dedicated to leather, where the other one is more of a kind of tailoring space. Yeah. And we combine these two to kind of create really durable and unisex clothing. Exactly. So Barbara kind of runs the tailoring workshop and I basically do the leather goods workshop, but there's a lot of interplay between the two, like um, the leather goods workshop in here. We've got the embossing machine where we make uh, like the gold swing tags that we put in the garments. And then like we do all of the kind of studs and like rivets and stuff like that in here as well. So there's a lot of kind of between the two. Yeah. Can we start out by hearing a bit of a, an origin story? How and yeah. when did this yeah. start out? Uh, well, it kind of started out when we met. So I'm originally uh, from Poland. I'm from Warsaw. Um, I've got a, my family's got a tailoring heritage, so um, it's kind of in my blood. Um, and that interest kind of, yeah, as I said, has been always in me. And that's why I decided, okay, I want to go and actually study i studied footwear and i wanted to learn more about craft um and yeah so decided to go to lcf uh, london culture fashion and uh started my internship at the same time at george cleverly which is a bespoke shoemaker um in mayfa where nick worked as a yeah. shoemaker and we yeah, fell in a... love <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh we are married as well um but yeah i was uh working at Cleverly's in the workshop as a last maker for about four years and that's where we met and, and that's where we found out how much we both love craft and like to do something together did few little projects which they, they didn't go really well yeah. <laughs> we kind of thought, oh my god I don't think we can do this um you know anything bigger but then when actually we decided you know it's time for us to to dedicate our time and and create a brand um it's been great no we've yeah. been doing a really good job yeah, it's gone really team. well so you moved to hackney which has to be is it still the hipster capital of london yeah i mean you know we we try not to engage with that too much but yeah. it's it's a really nice place to live like it's uh we've got a really great high street that doesn't have any supermarkets on it and it's just like uh like greenery from the greengrocers and like yeah it's brilliant and there's a lot of craft people um you know around us uh, ceramicists jewelers yeah, um we've got um seamstresses so what's great about having a brand that's based in hackney is that we can really get other craft people you know down the road to work for us and collaborate and it's yeah. really truly local um and that's that's amazing that we can do that rather than outsource even though you know we'd keep some london is massive so even if we get a seamstress in london very often we had that experience in the past where someone would live literally two hours from us and that's still the same city yeah but no i mean tilly the girl that's um working with us now 
she was kind of a friend from dog walking before she was getting involved with yeah. the business. We met in the park. We, we <laughs> just started chatting. She she knew our brand um, from Instagram and approached us, and we started a conversation. And I became really good friends and decided to get her on board and you know and have had to help us out with orders, yeah. which has been working out really well. Yeah, she's really good. Yeah, definitely, it's been brilliant. So, Barbara, did you finish a degree in fashion? Yeah, so I graduated um, from LCF. Um, I became so I graduated becoming student of the year, which was really great because they had this like LCF, this is like big competition for the entire UK um, students graduates, and and they select the best student, and they selected me. So I was very happy to get that. It gave me also a lot of confidence um, to actually be able to you know, first of all, feel like I like my style. I know what I'm doing. I I mean, I know what I'm doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I feel like, you know, I can slowly um, believe, like I can definitely believe in myself and learn more and more. Um, and I'm a quick learner. And, you know, that kind of got me a really good job in fashion. Started at Jimmy Choo, which was not necessarily in line with my aesthetic, but definitely learned a lot um, at Jimmy Choo. But then quickly realized, you know, I'd much rather do something um, more, maybe, you know, kind of um, simpler, less shiny, more matte. <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, got an internship at Shauna Flynn, which is a bespoke shirt maker. And that got me uh, going with garment making um, and uh, gave us a really good base to start a state of nature with that kind of understanding of how bespoke garments are made. And Nick, making lasts at uh, George Cleverly. I mean, George Cleverly is sort of at the knobby end of shoe making, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess there's there's not many of them around anymore. There's You've got jo uh, George Cleverly and John Lobb and a couple of other smaller ones. Foster yeah. and Sons. Foster's, yeah, but I think they're making about like three pairs of bespoke shoes a year at the moment. Um so, yeah, I mean, that was great. I, I worked in the workshop with Cleverly's for about four years. Before that, I was a handbag designer. And I still work for Cleverly's today, but I just uh, I work from my workshop and we send boxes back and forth. Um, but now I think what I do for them is more kind of hand-stitched leather goods and making my own things for them from scratch. Whereas when I was in the workshop, a lot more customer based a lot more interaction and more kind of focused on the bespoke shoes and fitting customers and making lasts and doing little repairs and stuff like that which i still do here but maybe less less of yeah yeah so meeting up coming together and then designing or, or deciding to start a state of nature must have been a total u-turn compared to the trajectories you were both on at the time? I don't know if it felt like that. For, I mean, for you, less than, than me, uh, I, I guess. Because when we decided we want to we do it, you've already been working as a craftsman, and that mm. was your full-time kind of job. Yeah, that's um, true. For me, I was kind of um, getting to a place where I'd be, you know, I, I worked for luxury fashion brands, so it was very much driven by seasons um runway you know massive projects with massive budgets and quantities so 
that world was very, very different to what we're doing now, um, which was a bit scary, but also exciting because it felt really natural. That's yeah. why kind of the name State of Nature comes from kind of feeling like what you do is, is, is kind of, it's, it's something that you really love and enjoy and something that comes to you naturally yeah um, i mean that's that's how i felt about like that moment when we were starting to treat state of nature as a as a proper company and do it together it was a really nice marriage of all of the skills that we had both built up separately like we've got a little bit of crossover in our skill set not much like we're both pattern cutters which is where we kind of are standing at the bench together arguing about the different way to construct something but then yeah, there's parts of the brand that, you know, I have a lot more to say about and you you have less kind of experience with and a lot vice versa as well. Yeah, definitely. I think it's that's why it's kind of brilliant that, you know, with Nick's kind of approach to making stuff, which is mostly, you know, leather goods and then his pattern cutting is amazing. It's very kind of a high attention to detail. You can't really make, uh, you know, couple of millimeters is a big deal uh, yeah. with his work, which is brilliant for our brand because, you know, that means that everything is pattern cut in a really great way um, and you're really precise. Yeah, I like being precise. Yeah, <laughs> um, which I think gives that quality, feel of quality and durability. And I remember back when I was interning at Sean O'Flynn, he's literally next to Savile Row, so they get, like, amazing um clients with you know proper bespoke shirting and i remember my teacher my master john his stitching would be like the tiniest set setting you can have in your sewing machine it would literally be just tiny little dots um which just that was kind of thing that he was you know really proud of he's been doing it for years and years and that kind of showed the quality so you know you don't really get to experience and, and understand these things um, if you don't really talk to these real craftspeople that have been making bespoke items for a very long time um, and were kind of taught their craft through generations, no? Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, we were talking about this with a friend recently. There's uh, a kind of – it's so great to be informed and to to – to work off of the the knowledge that's out there but then there's there's elements of this business where it was it was our ignorance of how to do things that made it really great because we had to figure it out from scratch we had to kind of it it created innovations like little constructional elements about garments they're not like that because we made a conscious decision for it to be like that. sometimes they are <laughs> but sometimes the because we literally figured it out as we went along and kept it because it turned out to be kind of cool and unique about yeah. our, our products. And um, we found out quickly into the process that Japan loved it. Japan yeah. was the kind of number one country that was kind of, it still is, um, the most excited about kind of our aesthetic and how we like to simplify everything. Yeah, which is cool because we didn't design the stuff for Japan. We didn't think about a specific market or, or anything like that. It was more just figuring out how to make a really nice shirt and yeah. keeping it as simple as possible. And loads of different people have kind of, uh, what's the word, kind of 
put it in a box of like, oh, this is so Japanese and yeah. like, They're always or it's really German. It yeah. Yeah. So from a world of luxury, fashion, high fashion, bespoke, how would you define the sort of style of what you're doing now? I mean, when I explain to people what we do, I, I always kind of, I say that we learn everything that we know how to do from yeah, the bespoke world and from a price point that is is really high. It's it's unimaginably high for most people. And we really wanted to create a brand that could bring that level of, of make and quality and, and longevity, but without the crazy price tag. Like mm. we wanted to make stuff that our friends could afford to buy. Yeah. And something like, you know, booking an appointment in our workshop, because we, we don't have a shop yet hopefully we will at some point but uh, right now we you know we get clients in and they book an appointment to visit us in a workshop this is a very kind of bespoke service you know you don't really get to even though our our staff is not bespoke it's made to order and we are happy to edit patterns um occasionally but still the kind of energy around it and the culture around it is very much taken from bespoke um culture and world right yeah and, you know, we we want to keep the prices quite friendly, so we're quite careful about about offering more of a bespoke kind of service. Because if we do want to do that, then we need to raise our prices a little bit. Yeah, I think we'd prefer to keep them friendly, friendly and and you know keep the the client list in a in a nice uh, range. Because you do have a sort of direct to consumer model you've got yeah. no uh, no stockists or shops carrying what you do I, I often think this is the best way for everyone because it means that the customer probably usually gets a better deal and mm -hmm. the person making it also gets a better deal yeah absolutely i mean that's we came to that conclusion kind of the hard way we got into our distribution deal with um with a distributor in, in Japan quite early on in the life of the brand. Mm. Like we couldn't have been running it for more than eight months or something Less at that stage, thing, yeah. six months. Um, and, you know, it, it went pretty well and we made a little bit of money out of it, not nearly as much as we should have, but the, the lesson that we took out of that whole experience, we did two seasons with them was okay. We can continue down this line, get more stores, get more like clients, all of that stuff, but we gotta raise the prices like quite dramatically. And we've gotta figure out our production so that we can we can scale this thing. Mm. And the or the other option is we keep it small, we keep it in these little workshops in Hackney, and we keep the prices quite low and focus on direct client, focus on getting like a smaller amount of of clients but uh but grow organically right yeah. yeah and kind of you know have the prices as you mentioned it is when someone sells you know sell stuff wholesale and you see them in amazing stores these stores need to get paid too and you know the whole price gets kind of so high that very little people can afford it 
Um, and, you know, we, we are offering a really great customer service. We've got so many yep. amazing reviews and people are so happy with the way we communicate, um, you know, with them throughout the process from the moment of order till the moment of actually, you know, receiving the, the parcel. They, we are, you know, updating them with everything. So that's really great. Um, and, you know, the thing with sizes, that's kind of a tricky um, place to be when you're doing an online sales to get someone you know their perfect size especially if you deliver you know um, somewhere in Europe um, or America you know you don't really want to get them to to return it to you because the size is wrong so we've developed this like amazing page on our website where you can actually measure yourself and everything is explained really yeah. clearly as much as um, it can be you know yeah um how to how to find the size yeah i mean it's the one kind of downside of running an online business like that is that you don't get to try it on or you do and then you gotta put it back in the post if you don't like it which it's a bit more streamlined when you've got a shop yeah definitely but you know thinking about our shop we would still like to continue with the same message our shop would be a workshop but it just you know, each of an act like a street access. So someone could actually walk into a beautiful workshop where we would be actually making things. Um, not to hang on the rails and keep things in stock, but making things to order for a customer, um, which I think is a very kind of cool approach. Um, it's very educational. It's nice for people to actually understand how much work someone has to put into making a piece of clothing you know it's not a uh, production line in the factory so everything yeah. is cut by hand and sewn by an individual person you know in and the it's factory. fun for people yeah. to see like every time we have clients coming over into these workshops they're always so interested and they really love to dig around and look at what you're what you're doing and like the other jobs that you've got on right now and like it's a it's a fun thing yeah and we almost become like friends with our customers some <laughs> yeah. of them we just chat um and they and they yeah come visit so it's been it's been really great that kind of direct client um direction for us yeah yeah we've had good luck we've met some cool people and we've had like some really good customers that have invested in us specifically because it's a new brand and they wanted to support us which is which is beautiful mm, definitely now, as I understand it, you're actually making everything yourself in your workshop. Uh, when I spoke to Ella Griffey a while back as well, I was just sitting there thinking, now with my sewing skills, I'd starve. I could not make enough every day <laughs> to, to, to feed myself. I mean, it sounds like you've got more than enough going on without even starting actually cutting and sewing shirts and jackets and gilets and whatnot. It must be exhausting. Uh, well, we love what we do. <laughs> we work six days a week right now. So we work, yeah, we take a day off. Uh, we are, you know, it's still very early into process. So we have to kind of pump some energy into this business to let people know about our skills, um, you know, develop a nice range of clothing, Um but yeah, it's not always <laughs> that nice. But no, you're right. Like that's the first um, thing that we've got to do now is 
is get less of your time on making and hand over more and more to other seamstresses um, that we kind of like and trust and we're happy with their work. And then your job becomes a bit more managey and um, and selling. Yeah, definitely. That's why Tilly, the you know new seamstress, uh, she's been brilliant. Her attention to detail is is amazing. You know, yeah. that's kind of the number one thing when we interview for a kind of a seamstress maker role in our company is the attention to detail. Actually, someone that really cares as much as we care about providing this high standard luxury piece um and that's challenge isn't everyone yeah we've seen some shocking examples of of shirts coming back from seamstresses first tries it's just like a zip through a machine like it's nothing like what what you do definitely and and literally you know if there is a tiny mistake in the shirt i need to in the stitching i need to unpick it and sew again because i just i i can't i'm a bit of a perfectionist um so now it's kind of the thing of finding people that are that love craft as much as we do um and joining us as neurotic as we are (laughs) and tilly is one of them so we are growing um but yeah we're also so happy to see so many orders coming in and people being so happy with with you know the product and buying and coming back and yeah yeah you, you know we've been around for like a year and a half and we've got already customers that come back to us and they, you know, they're ordering again yeah. and again. And they're excited about it. Um, it's really nice because, I mean, you know, just making and selling a product on its own, there's a certain kind of joy attached to that. But when it's a, a business that you've created from scratch and it's got a whole kind of design handwriting and you've done the logo and you've done the website mm-hmm. and you've done all of this stuff, you've built a kind of baby and to see that it's working properly and people are happy with the things that are coming out of it and they're happy interacting with it is yeah. it's just yeah it's a very nice feeling yeah and the you know direction of actually offering a unisex clothing has been um, you know you can think about it as a challenge just because to actually design something that men and women be happy to wear it's not that easy you know to keep it fun mm. um, but it looks like i mean we've got male and female customers coming in ordering shirts and trousers and waistcoats and jackets and they're all happy so yeah. i think we nailed it that the shape <laughs> and the aesthetic seems to be working which is great yeah definitely let's just focus on the unisex for just a moment because i'm baffled by how that is even possible given that the sexes are uniquely different <laughs> uh, is it a good thing if people aren't sort of too obviously male or female? Can I say well, that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's something that we've kind of noticed a bit more recently in the past kind of six months that we've we've had loads of interaction with trans customers, and I like it's really cool. Like yeah. that, we've just kind of we never thought of that as as a direction to go in or a market to attack. But it just happens that our kind of the way that we wanted to make clothes has has hit home for a specific section of of people. And um, that's really nice. Yeah, that's been really good. But also when it comes to the silhouette of our trousers, um, they're high-waisted. So, you know, because they sit a little bit higher um, than a regular pair of trousers, um, they tend to fit male and female quite 
nicely. Um, and, you know, they are a bit parachute so their legs are a bit wider, um, which also is great for, you know, both genders. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, you could say about all of the clothes, really, we go with quite a, a loose-fitting, like, oversized look, which is obviously very easy to fit different shaped bodies into. The only like thing that's a little bit more difficult is is trousers because you've got this one measurement where it has to fit around your waist. It, it can't be like massively oversized or undersized. But yeah, apart from that, they're they're all kind of uh, loose fitting, which which makes it very easy. Yeah, no, totally. And you know, we've always been, you know, between uh, Nick and I, I kind of feel like we've always been sharing our clothes this is, you know just <laughs> before we started brand we kind of yeah we shared our wardrobe um yeah and i never felt like i was um lacking this feminine you know feel or i was feeling like i'm i'm wearing men's clo- clothes i think it's just also about your attitude is the style you you know you represent uh how you want to be perceived i actually think that women wearing um men clothing gives them this kind of lifts them up gives them power gives them kind of this sense of strength um and you know it's to do with uh garment but also shoes um i'm lucky because i'm size six and a half so i can literally wear men's shoes and i this is what i do i don't shop for women's shoes i just go into men's section (laughs) that's for the smallest they've got (laughs) and that's been working fine for me and for many other women that uh, that bought from us did you have any comments on that, Nick? You were looking very <laughs> thoughtful. Uh, no, no, no. Enough said, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I, can, I can see how it would work. The aesthetic you have does work sort of both for male and females, and I can see it working equally, equally well. I think a large part of that is also the fabrics you use and the colours. It's very warm and sort of beautiful fabrics. Yeah. Is that a conscious decision? Well, yeah, I mean, fabrics really is is the big part of where we spend the money. Like we, uh, obviously, as you've said, we came to this um, company from a tailoring bespoke world kind of beginning. And one of the amazing resources that we could draw on was, you know, all of the amazing mills and, and places to get materials that they use on Savile Row. And we could just get straight into that really rich uh, product without having to do too much research, really. Yeah, it's definitely. lucky. All the swatch cards, right? Yeah, we, we called in a bit of help from a few different tailors who were really supportive and just sent us so many contacts and so many, like, qualities of, like, yeah, you got to pick up this one and, like, oh, there's a corduroy from this bloke and it's amazing and... Yeah. Yeah. So the these the fabrics we use are they are kind of tried and used um, by other tailors, um, yeah. and this is something that we wouldn't be able to get if we wouldn't actually be coming from that world. If we wouldn't have these these friends, it would have taken a lot more work and a lot more trial and error to get to where we are right now. Definitely. We we kind of yeah, it was all already tested to a certain extent. Yeah. At least working with the suppliers, we we could avoid some of the ones that were really difficult to work with, maybe, or the prices wouldn't work for us, etc., yeah. etc. Et 
and the fact that you know we we use only natural fibers we don't use any polyester um when it comes to blends we use nettle cotton blend but you know plants so this is all very conscious conscious decisions because i i've never worn really um polyester clothing even before i had my we've started a brand right mm. um we've always went for you know 100 cotton 100 silk 100 wool these have these were the things that we're looking at when we're buying products and this yeah, is how definitely. we we wanted our brand to be yeah and we, we want to kind of dig into it even further going forward with the brand one of the conversations that we have quite a lot and we we haven't started designing it yet but i'm really excited about it, is uh we always talk about how yoga gear is just so synthetic and kind of at odds with the the rest of the yoga culture it's all like so organic and let's get a nice coffee and let's be healthy and happy and they're all dressed in plastic clothing and we really want to like attack that and and see if we can make some like cool cotton like sport gear yeah and you know it's not not need to do with like a yoga balls or running around anything to do with sports to kind of go yeah. back to this you know um cotton uh yeah 1920s <laughs> sport look <laughs> and uh, offer something like that would be quite nice because uh, yeah. i think there is definitely a gap uh in them yeah needing actual like garments that were they know not inspired by sports from the past and made into something that you would wear to the office they actually made for you to to exercise in yeah well yeah like you say all of that stuff already exists we have a stack of like old pictures on our phones of like yeah amazing old gear that uh is kind of part of the inspiration for a lot of the stuff that we design we take little details from 1920s stuff yeah is that because you have a sort of secret longing to live in the 1920s? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, it's a difficult time. But I don't know. I've always been drawn to kind of countryside, you know, look. And, you know, even the, you know, I'm Polish, so we've got a very strong um, history of war. And that kind of, you know, being educated at school by war and, and being surrounded by, like, images of, of, you know, back then and how people looked and dressed. Um, some of the clothes were, I mean, I mean, the times were extremely difficult, but actually some of their clothes were incredible. Um, and they were very much in line with a state of nature, simple yeah. workwear. Um, so, yeah, definitely. I think that the kind of sense of connecting with past and trying to, to take inspiration and edit it a little bit and make it more modern is in line with, with our aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we never really thought that we were going to invent something new or everything's in clothing, at least has been done a million times over. It's just kind of unique for whatever reason, like, because we're making it and we've got a kind of specific history to us and, and we've got little kind of decisions that we make along the way it becomes something new but we've never tried to do that too hard yeah um i've often wondered when when someone starts a brand a creative endeavor uh you sort of basically touched on it a bit here but isn't there a sort of pressure 
to be creating something new, something different, something no one has really done before. I can't imagine anyone sort of starts a creative company and says, yeah, let's do exactly what those dozen guys are doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I know what you mean, and I know how it sounds, but I think from my experience, uh, like seeing a lot of new brands get created, like I, when I was a handbag designer, I, I used to work for a consultancy called uh, Katie Hillier, and she worked as a designer for a lot of other brands, and she would help brands right at the beginning of their kind of setting things up. So I saw that process happen over and over again. And people try really hard to justify their business by we are doing something unique. We're doing something that the world has never seen before. And they, they put a lot of work into it. And often in my experience, it becomes the ball and chain that drags that business down. Like it stops you from discovering cool things along the way. I mean, uh, a couple of examples that I can think of, uh, like, um, I work for a guy who's obsessed with, with USP and created a couple of different brands that had, you know, very unique selling point products, but because they were so unique, they were really difficult to scale because they came from a specific factory in this like really like backwards of, of India and you, you couldn't find another one of those factories. So you couldn't produce more of it and then you can expand the business basically. And the factory would close. <laughs> yeah. Factory would close and then it's gone. But yeah. So, I mean, I think I like the way that we've done it because we, <laughs> what makes our brand special is is us and it's you know a cool little workshop in hackney with two people that have a lot of skills and really care about the things that they do it doesn't have to be much more than that yeah definitely and i think that's what people are kind of interested in when they look at our work they they want to talk to us they want to find out details about what we do and you know the design process is quite um we don't really make these massive mood boards because i used to when i worked in luxury i would make these massive mood boards covering mm. entire wall of pictures from internet and these would be the pictures that we would use to create new collections so to begin a collection you would already start from just taking ideas from other designers basically um, well, we don't. We never do that for state of nature. We always. Start... We never have to. Yeah. We, we don't have to really define our aesthetic because it's it's us. It's all of the things that we like. It's you know sometimes we have to remind ourselves a little bit, but it's we don't have to put a huge amount of work into into defining that. Yeah, and the, the only thing we do do when it comes to is getting inspiration from other designers is clothes that we've owned for 15 years so we got them when we were like teenagers <laughs> and we're still wearing them <laughs> and we still yeah. love them and we then we kind of start thinking you know why do we love them so much what's amazing about these pieces yeah sure um is this something that we actually like to see for a state of nature 
um, because we've already tested it for so many years and we know this works. In that sense, we do take inspiration from our old wardrobe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's just useful to to see how things have been put together and to see a physical object some, sometimes. But I think, you know, the biggest part of our design process is, is the, the pattern cutting bit. Like, that's where we really figure it out. And we make most of the decisions about what this thing is going to be, right? Yeah, definitely. Starting quite um, detailed and full on and then just realizing, you know what, this doesn't make sense. Let's just yeah. <laughs> keep it simple. Yeah, we, we have a good uh, like process of simplification where I'll massively over-design something and like really engineer it and I'll be like using maths to figure it out like the perfect color and it's really complicated and it's got all these curves and sections and I'll give it to you and like 15 minutes later you'll come back with a rectangle of paper being like this is the new color <laughs> and like that's such a good example because when that garment got made for the first time and it we put it on that rectangle color made the garment it would have been so much less spectacular if you had done the complicated thing that i wanted to do it'd just be like like all the things you see on the internet yeah exactly yeah yeah i'm so curious about what that color was like (laughs) (laughs) it was um it was pretty standard it was it blade runner inspired no, like that's what was cool about the rectangle collar because yeah. it was like the Blade Runner coat. Um, no, but my one, it was based on an old like uh, Prada Mac. And yeah, it was, it was cool. I mean, but I, I don't think it works for us as well as our colors do. Yeah. No, but you did a great job on it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Sorry for like, cancelling it. I did catch that little sniffle of sorrow there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm happy. Like you can, you can continue to make those calls. Good. <laughs> um, now, clearly, a business sort of has to be a business to run, and you've mentioned use all natural fabrics, mostly sourced in the UK. Um, a, a lot of companies would be using imported fabrics. I mean, fast fashion, notorious for finding the cheapest fabrics possible. Yeah. I mean, how, how much does that, I mean, when making garments, could they be sold extremely cheap if a very cheap fabric was used? Um, are you sort of making things hard for yourself by setting such high standards? I mean, honestly, I, I don't think it would even help us that much trying to go well, in the direction of getting really cheap fab- fabrics because there, there are cheaper fabrics out there, obviously, but we're not a big factory and we, we probably couldn't meet the, um, the minimum order re- requirements for, for most of those things. I mean, we, we love using these amazing materials from these little mills and and using local as far as possible but that's also a a decision that we made out of convenience because we can order like five meters of one thing 
and not be spending thousands of pounds just because one customer wanted something in yellow. Yeah, because, you know, if we'd be thinking about fabric for two pounds, a pound a meter, that's like... Which exists. Which exists. These are the fabrics you can buy, but these are fabrics you can buy from India, China, uh, Pakistan, you know, mm. these countries. And the problem with getting these fabrics, as Unique said, um, MOQ is really high, and then you have to ship it. So then shipment is extremely expensive too. So you end up paying basically the same price of a very cheap fabric as you would if you just order from Italy or some supplier in England. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole situation with, um, with having these little fabric shops here, it does work for like helping small businesses like us. I mean, we still use quite, um, you know, a larger fabric supplies from, um, yeah, from sure. England, you know, these people, they serve large companies like uh, North Projects, let's say, the street yeah, brand. They would, North Projects would order some of, of the, the English fabric we, we use. But when they ordered from the supply that we use, they'd make a whole collaboration out of it because <laughs> it's from the, you know, English supply. Yeah, they do a make heritage. a big show out of it. They'd make a big show out of it. Whereas well, all of our fabric suppliers <laughs> are like those those ones. Where they would get on you for collaboration, we use it just for everything, you know? Yeah. We, we just use uh, what feels right. Maybe we should just turn every garment into a collaboration with a mill. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Special collaboration. Now, wh where I was sort of thinking with that was not, I wasn't wanting to encourage you to buy cheap fabrics <laughs> from, <laughs> from abroad. Okay. It was more sort of, because I can see you, you were coming into that now uh, about how you're part of an infrastructure that actually works. You've got mm. all these small mills that really probably by 2022 standards have a pretty archaic uh, business model. Sure. But as long as they have people buying from them and appreciating them, they can still continue to operate much as they have been doing for a long time. Yeah. Well, they, they need us. They need small brands. They need lots of new customers coming in all the time. That's why I think um, a lot of the English and Italian uh, fabric suppliers and leather suppliers, their minimums are going down all the time, and they're realizing that they need, to, they need their big clients, and they need to embrace small clients that maybe are going to double in size for the next 20 years, or maybe they're going to fold and go under this year you don't know and you've just got to put your work into all of them and you know if you do then you might get that one one client that makes your business work or if yeah. you don't you don't and your business definitely won't work and we've had a lot of luck getting in touch with all these meals um english and, and italian um they all seem to be checking our website every time i email a new mail that i really like to work with they just check our website and i think they just You're like checking the analytics on the website no so they just you say to me you know what oh. i actually really like your stuff i'm happy to work with you because because we right. want to work with small brands that make good stuff you know yeah um, it's a good attitude yeah we want to we want to help you and you know, they are so friendly. There is no feeling of, you know what, we're a small worker brand. 
and we have to ask for this amazing, you know, try and get that amazing fabric. But it is really, really hard. Not really. These people really like the people that work in the mill. They want to support you because they can see how much, how much we care. British Millerine. Um, except for British Millerine, <laughs> <laughs> but we don't do British Millerine anymore. Yeah. Yeah, so British Mulrain, they are muckies. They can be a me. little bit difficult. I think yeah. a lot of people find it find it hard. Yeah. I'm curious now, but I won't, <laughs> I won't pursue that one. <laughs> <laughs> I hear good things about Hallie Stevenson's, though. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, that's our number one uh, people for getting fabric for trousers. Hallie Stevenson's are brilliant. They've got really cool stuff. We've got all their swatch cards. Yeah. <laughs> Every time we want to introduce a new new fabric, it's always starting from Hallie Stevenson's. And they're kind of going into the nettle world as well, which is we're really excited about. We've bought a couple of their nettle fabrics. Or no, it was just the the uh, thicker outerwear nettle that came from them, right? Yeah. It was and that's really cool. It was yeah. fifty five quid a meter or something. Very expensive. It's pretty expensive. You know, we use... But it's really cool. Yeah. We use twill from Lovat. Um, do you know if you're familiar with Lovat? Um, yeah. Beautiful fabric. And that was, I think, £26 a metre or something like that, which is a premium cloth. But the nettle, half nettle, half cotton, is about 50 quid from Harley Stevenson's. And the reason why nettle and cotton is more expensive is because it's, in a way, a new technology... There is not a lot of fabric made out of nettle, even though it is a plant that you can turn into textile. Cotton took over the whole kind of textile industry and the manufacturing processes are not adjusted to process nettle. So actually to, to make that fabric costs more because you need specific settings on the machine, specific type of processes yeah. to actually be able to work with that plant which is very interesting because if you think about nettle it's literally everywhere you can grow it everywhere we could <laughs> grow nettle in the uk and make you know uk textile out of nettle yeah um we were talking to a german nettle farmer which he taught us a lot of this stuff about like the nettle crop and and how the machinery needs to change and, and all of that he was so into it but yeah. it sounds like such a funny job i'm a nettle farmer like the sounds like the easiest job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fiber industry has been changing now, going from synthetics and cotton uh, via linen and hemp, and now nettle. Do, do you have many opportunities for using, say, hemp fabric? Yeah, so uh, we have used hemp. We've used hemp from um, Italian mill. Yeah, um, they're called Canclini. And they really, it's a beautiful fabric. We love it. It feels quite similar to to linen, I guess. It's, it's, you know, kind of finer than linen. Depends, again, of how you process that hemp. Uh, but the fabric is it's beautiful. It's just, you know, after Brexit, uh, getting stuff from Italy became more of a challenge, uh, especially for smaller businesses, because you need to pay all these additional costs. We're now trying to really focus on getting all our fabric from British suppliers and keeping it yeah. here. Not as a rule, but kind of out of convenience. Out, out of more financially. I, if I could, I'd get, you know, loads from Italy, but yeah. it is more expensive. And we're definitely going for 
more of a fine look. Because um, with hemp, you can get that kind of heavy, chunky hemp that we don't really... Uh, it could be cool. Maybe. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> In my head, I was kind of thinking, you know, the kind of smooth texture is for shirting is something that I probably prefer to yeah. work with. You know, if you really put time and effort into sewing something in a beautiful way and look at, you know, the, the line of your stitching and it's perfect. You can't see it in hemp, like chunky hemp, because all the stitching goes in between the fibers and it all disappears. Where you do it in the poplin, it's all like perfectly there sitting on the surface. Uh, and that's kind of more from a making point of view. I should say Barbara has literally just like an hour ago made a corduroy shirt. And came into my workshop like so angry at the corduroy because it's like it's such a messy fabric to use compared to like a beautiful fine poplin. Yeah, well, it's all like kind of like a yog velvet, you know. It's got this tiny hair, and you sew through it, and you can't see anything. It's literally <laughs> gone. It sounds to me like Savile Row bespoke and vintage workwear are sort of colliding here and it's uh, <laughs> causing problems. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, potentially. It's <laughs> the price we pay. Yeah. But some really thick uh, hemp uh, linen nettle blend would be great for the high-waist trousers. Yeah, could be. I mean, we're, we're keeping an eye out for, for nettle all the time, but I think it's just going to take take time for people to want to offer it because they've got to invest um, not huge amounts in in changing the machines. The, like we were saying, cotton's gone through like centuries of refinement to get to this stage where you can make a cotton fabric that looks like a poplin that's so like beautifully flat and looks almost artificial. And they need to do that again. Yeah. To get a nettle fabric to like a hundred percent nettle fabric to do the same thing. Probably won't take centuries. We were like most people have said it's gonna take like twenty, thirty years of real investment. I mean, yeah, it's it's a real uh, investment. We can't really take on these sorts of projects as a small company. The guy we spoke to in Germany, he said that he's farm is sponsored by um German government and they pump money into that kind of technology. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of um, something that we, we won't be focusing on, I don't think, producing our own textile. Um, but we are introducing linen shirts because, obviously, Ireland um, so close and, and would be great to have some linen shirts uh, on offer. So this is what we're going to have this summer, Yeah, which is very exciting. Um yeah, so linen is definitely something we're gonna we're gonna use, but again, linen that's a bit heavier, as in weight, heavier weight than what you usually get. Yeah. Um, because I do have to say I don't like these linen shirts, which is just see through. <laughs> it's a bad look. Hmm. I do wonder if there's a sort of um sort of fashion in fa- in fibers, um, because linen has been sort of super hot the last couple of years two three four years especially within the sort of slow fashion conscious style thing i did notice my wife bought a pair of trousers from a british brand three well gosh what was the pandemic now it must be four years ago and that actually had was nettle fabric which was the first time i'd ever come across it and it was very like linen yeah 
the sort of uh, uneven, slubby, uh, excellent sort of because I, I love the tactility of fabrics. Totally. If everything was just sort of smooth cotton, it's not, <laughs> not at all interesting. No, I totally agree. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's it's funny. Like we have the capability to to make those beautiful flat uh, fabrics in cotton, but now the the style is going in the other direction. So with cotton, we're doing it artificially, creating that tactility and creating an unevenness yeah uh with nettle and i think to a certain extent with hemp i don't think it is artificial i think that's just like the only way they can make it right (laughs) now (laughs) yeah that as i understand it i don't know i'm not an expert with this sort of stuff yeah but for for state of nature we do use um so we've got um, ripstop on offer as well which is 100 cotton but it's got this kind of weave that you know gives you this kind of grid uh look and it's also waxed so that's a really beautiful combination combination of and kind of you know applying this idea of you know having some sort of texture yeah i love that rip stuff it's so cool it's really like just uh kind of molds onto your body yeah and it's amazing when you wash it and then you iron it after wash that wax kind of becomes like a regular shirt, becomes soft and easy, and then you iron it, and it kind of comes back to life. Yeah. It becomes like a paper. Turns into a crisp and again. crisp kind of shirt, right? <laughs> it's a great... I, I love it, no? Yeah. It's brilliant. And people like that shirt. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. How does the leather part of the business come into it? Um, so, as I said, there's a certain amount of crossover. Just uh, there are machines in here that come in useful for for the state of nature business. but. You know, I, I also, as a person, I still work for Cleverly's a little bit. I have a, a few other clients. And so, yeah, it's kind of like the leather workshop is a separate business that has its own uh, own work to do. But then a certain section of that um, is me working as an employee of a state of nature and my job with a state of nature isn't really focused around leather goods. It's, it's focused around pattern cutting and looking more at the business end of, of like keeping things running. Yeah. But we, we have had few wallets, which we, you know, when it comes to wallets and they can make the most beautiful wallet. Yeah. Um, you can imagine. However, it takes days, sometimes weeks, to make something out of leather and stitched by hand because it's all hand stitched. So it's all like a traditional kind of um, like a Birkin bag, like a mare's Birkin bag. It's all done by hand. So that takes a very long time, which puts us in a bit of a higher price point. And the question we've got now is kind of, uh, is State of Nature customer um, happy to spend that much money on wallet? Or maybe it's just slightly too expensive. Yeah for them so then we have to maybe simplify the, the the wallet and then make something 
especially for a state of nature, keeping it high quality, but less labor intensive. So we are thinking about that wallet now and we are kind of wondering and, and getting some samples done and, and you know, yeah. potentially there will be something it's, from... It's an ongoing discussion, like injecting more leather goods into into a state of nature. You know, it's a, it's a useful thing that we've got a leather goods workshop right next door to the tailoring workshop, but it doesn't mean that we have to do something just because it's there. I think, um, you know, hand-stitched leather goods, it's a really specific thing, and the cost is, is very high. And the, I think the problem that we've had in the past is when you lay out the price architecture in front of you, selling, you know, a jacket for a certain amount and then a tiny little wallet for the same amount or even more, it doesn't make any sense. It, it, it reads wrong. It's a hard sale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I don't think we have to put the effort in there. I mean, um, at the moment, like if we get any uh, bespoke leather goods orders, we just handle it through my business separately. Yeah, but we do uh, use embossing machine that you use to emboss leather um, to stamp our swing tags and business cards. So we use it yeah. for packaging. Our packaging is done all by, by hand. We don't again outsource anything, <laughs> which yeah. is uh, quite special. Yeah, definitely. But I love doing the packaging. It's like such a satisfying like end point and you tie it up with the red string and everything's really beautiful. Yeah, and we use pattern cutting paper to wrap our clothing. Um, yeah, so it's it's quite special. Yeah. What, what, I'm hearing all this about how how all the good things of what you do what is the absolute worst part of running your own small business <laughs> there's a few i mean they exist like constant thinking about what can we improve what can be better you know it's really hard to take a day off because you constantly just they're thinking about what what you can do to get more sales, maybe more or like uh, certain clients or mm. maybe change something in the style that could have been improved something, you know? It's a kind of like constant thinking. How can we improve? Yeah, definitely. That whole kind of anxiety around selling through Instagram and kind of keeping up with social media as well as like a big yeah. thing. And how social media, you know, we really try and produce a very high quality content and that takes a lot of time. But yeah. then, you know, you post something and that's just lasts for seconds and it's gone. And you've got to post again and last for seconds gone. And it's just that kind of feeling of um, creating such a beautiful work and maybe not necessarily getting enough of like, um, you know, attention around it. And uh, And that's difficult. Yeah. But you know it is it is going well on the social media side the the followership has always been growing and you know it, it takes a huge amount of work but it's it's working and oh a cat on me <laughs> sorry we've got loads of pets there's there's three animals in this room with us and they're all um, jumping at us jumping around each other yeah um, where were we? <laughs> so yeah, the the, diff the social media is hard because also you know when you have a small e-commerce brand, social media is like a number one platform to sell the product. 
so then you you realize you know this is this is my door to to clients what if one day someone's gonna get into my instagram and, and take over or block me or whatever suddenly you realize oh my god is this is this all i've got that's why there is another side of it building a newsletter you know growing that kind of uh, mailing list having actual list of names on on the books so there's a lot of things that you need to really focus when you when you grow a small small brand and that can be a little bit overwhelming yeah i mean we're doing all this stuff for the first time there's bits of starting a business that we were lucky enough to see before trying to do it ourselves but most of it we've learned on the fly like everyone else and it's 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 hard doing that it's hard not knowing the answers a lot of the time and people giving you advice that's hard to yeah unsolicited (laughs) advice (laughs) that's top of my list of least favorite things yeah everyone is like just get into like big stores get into selfridges get into harrods i'm like you know what it's not that simple (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, mr porter i think they take like five percent off like they want you to sell your product for five percent lower than you would at the wholesale price if we took a deal with mr porter i'm fairly certain it would bankrupt us <laughs> it's just not that simple when you look at it from the outside it all seems so colorful but actually yeah. when you're in it you realize that's a lot of thinking and a lot of you gotta have to have your own opinion about what's right and take a take people's advice but also have a good think about it and yeah and just double check if that's the right (laughs) way to go before making that step yeah do you see yourself as a a slow fashion company yeah right yeah i mean that's the description that's did we like self self name ourselves as that or did someone else um like do an article we don't really like um call ourselves you know sustainable or slow fashion because i just feel like these are like very buzz buzz kind of language yeah um and i try to avoid that i just think look at the the instagram look at the website read description of an, a garment and, and make your own description of the brand. I think we are just as transparent as we can be. Um, and we, you know, we don't work with seasons. We make clothes that are good all year round. You yeah. can wear it all year round and you can feel great in it. And uh, that's already so sustainable. Um, we don't push ourselves to to produce something that doesn't feel right because someone told us to do that. Um, and fabrics are all natural fibers. Yes, I think that's. Would you would you have to to add Nick to this? No, I think you're right. Like, uh, we don't have to. I don't think we have to put a load of work into describing ourselves too much. If you look at kind of our wording on the website, it's it's very very as basic as it could be. Like, we make clothes in London. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think we, I don't feel the need to brand ourselves or, or direct ourselves in that way too much. And like you say, with sustainability, it's such a, such a minefield. There's so many people out there calling themselves 
sustainable for one reason or the other and then behind the scenes it's not so much and i i don't want to fight with those people and i don't want to fight with the the real um diehard consumers that uh that really read into into the brands that they're buying into quite rightly um but i I don't want to fight with those people i just want to have my little workshop and Mm. do what i do and do what i feel is right and i i can i can live with that so because you know we 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 had few kind of um experiences of posting uh, Nick's leather leather work on our Instagram and few people would would comment on like why don't you use vegan leather why wouldn't you use uh, pineapple instead of yeah. cow and you know these sorts of questions are not something that I really want to get involved with and the kind of yeah, respond you don't to want it because it's just there is no point because I don't think these people are I, I don't want to say that <laughs> educated <laughs> enough to understand the com- complexity well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I've I've used I've tried I think a lot of the vegan leather fish leather <laughs> fish leather yeah that's not vegan no not vegan but you know some people it's think it's an it could alternative be for pescatarians <laughs> <laughs> pescatarian leather <laughs> um, yeah no I've I've tried all the kind of uh, pineapple leather and it is very different and it it doesn't do the job in in quite the same way. And you don't Yeah, exactly. And I think when I talk about um, my my specific job as a leather goods maker, I've never tried to convince anyone that it's it's eco in any way. It's um it's a material that is incredibly energy intensive and water intensive and, and it's chemically very intensive. It's not good for the environment. The, the only thing that could be said about the way that I make things being good for the environment is that I make them to last. And the, the object is that you get a wallet and you keep it for the rest of your life rather than it falling apart in a year and you need to get another wallet. I think that that's the, the most sustainable thing that we can all do. And, and we're trying to do it with a state of nature as well. We're trying to build things that are just going to stick around and aren't going to be made obsolete by the style or by them falling apart. Mm, and I like to think that someone that buys from us really understands, you know, this has been made by someone, the tiny little workshop, the attitude towards that piece and care that they're going to put into washing it will be different. It's just like the whole feel of it and the way you, you take care of your things. That's really the yeah. longevity behind it. You know, my grandma's got some of her clothes are like 50, they got 50 years and they, they look brand new because she like, oh, I, you know, usually washes them by hand on very low setting. And she's got all these like techniques to keep them alive. And so that's cool. incredible. <laughs> and that's, yeah, something to learn from. Yeah, definitely. I think that was a fair reply. It was kind of a trick question, if anyone can still remember what the question was. <laughs> I don't think I can. <laughs> Slow fashion. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, I must have to admit, I'm very frustrated by the number of companies that have popped up now claiming to be sustainable fashion companies and mm. so forth with lots of recycled polyester and whatnot. And you can sort of tell that 
they're not really necessarily good companies making good stuff. They're just a new iteration of really just sustaining our profit margins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, with recycling plastic and then making uh, recycled polyester stuff, you still got microplastic going in the ocean every time you wash it. It's never that, that perfect. So it's really hard to find a solution for this. Yeah, there's Maybe. no silver bullet answer to the the eco thing. I think, like, we've just got to try and do our best and keep on looking at it and keep on thinking of good solutions that work for us. But we're we're not going to be able to um, solve the problem. No, but I think they had a the right attitude in. Uh... Well, say 1920, but I think more around World War Two, when there was talk about buying better, mm. uh, buying once instead of now buying more expensive, buying less, yeah. sort of morphed into that where people are just really they're buying as much as before, but more expensive stuff because it just feels so good. Yeah, yeah, but I think the the buying once thing it's it's achievable. It's just. Um, we're really not used to it. Yeah. We're not used to the idea of spending like a significant portion of your monthly salary on, on one item you really save up for and love. Yeah. And, and also, I, I also have to say that I think people that's sidestepping side it, but wash their clothes way too often. <laughs> that's also a very like terrible thing for fabric you know they just wash wash it wash it away <laughs> just you know all the holes stitching falling apart and all of that it really comes from um you know putting it on 60 degrees and and not caring and feeling like somehow you need to change your shirt every single day not necessarily depends on your job obviously depends on you know many many things but i do think some people wash their clothes way too often the mm. idea of not washing your denim it's kind of a, you know, around the work of, um, culture, I think that's kind of well-known thing that you shouldn't be really washing your denims. Uh, yeah. Where for a person that buys, you know, fast fashion pair of jeans, they will wash it every two, three days. And that's that's terrible. Yeah. And not only wash it, but also tumble dry it. Yeah, exactly. To really wear it out. Mm. <laughs> Now, part of what I see is buying less is buying things that you actually will cherish and wear. Because if you buy, you might buy something really expensive and you think you're buying this just once, but if you don't actually like it, you're not going to wear it. Sure. Do you have any thoughts about how you make stuff that people will really love? Well, I mean, I think that, I think we do a pretty good job with it so far because we haven't we haven't sweated too much about trying to please other people's aesthetics. We've, we've just kind of focused on paring things down and making it super utilitarian and making everything function and making sure that all of the seams work and it's comfortable. And we've got a kind of checklist of things that we go down to make sure this product that we've just designed is successful in all these different ways. And for me, if I was buying a new item, that that's what I would want to see. 
in, in the process of its creation. I would want to see that, that someone cared about all those things. Yeah, and I think we, you know, we're doing quite, we do quite a good job um, when it comes to photographing it, offering different kind of ways of wearing it in different places. And, you know, now we're trying to introduce different silhouettes. So um, to this kind of day, we've been kind of doing it mostly wearing it on ourselves, but now we're trying to get other people involved in modeling for us and get them to to put it on and, and style it and just feel comfortable. And then we can take a few pictures, post it on social media and also communicate how the shirt will look on the slightly bigger person you know or shorter person or taller person you know all these things just to reassure people and then let them know how potentially they would look like wearing our clothes yeah um and that seems to seems to really work so far we haven't had many um returns really most of our clients are, are happy with their stuff occasionally we get size um that it's a bit too big or too small but that's fine as well. We actually, even though I have heard a few companies struggling of the Brexit, we kind of found a quite good uh, place with it. We, we've yeah. been sending all over the world and, and it's been fine. So, yeah. And now, most recently, you've got a collaboration going with a fairly well-known artist. Yes, so Mark Herald. We have done a shirt with him, which went really well. Uh, it sold out within like a day. They're all gone. And people are constantly emailing me asking for that shirt. Where will it be back in stock? Uh, well, we don't really want to make that shirt again. And that kind of attention came from BBC, basically. So what happened was um, there was this program on BBC called The Repair Shop. And um, the presenter was wearing our shirt. And after that, everyone kind of went crazy and wanted that piece. (laughs) You know, we're a tiny workshop. We can't really offer that many shirts. And, you know, it takes a lot of time as well. That shirt was very difficult to make. There was big pattern, which was discharge printed onto denim. Um, So to pattern match that sort of piece would take forever. So that was kind of very labor intensive. Um, and yeah, something that maybe we wouldn't want to do again. However, we are thinking and we are in the process of making silk scarves, um, collaborating with Mark on um, this beautiful scarf that will be printed with his again silk screen print. So traditional way of printing textile um, with his uh, whippet. So he's got a great whippet called Blue. Um, and he loves putting her... Now he's got another dog, Brio. So he's generally just in love with all, all his beautiful <laughs> hounds and taking them for like countryside walks uh, and uh, takes inspirations from these walks. And yes, he's created this beautiful print that we'll be putting on these silk scarves and finishing them by hand. And that's all going to be done in England as yeah. well. Printing and, you know, the whole process will, will be done locally. I'm just sitting here thinking for myself how funny it is that Old Town, previously on the podcast, have Monty Don, the celebrity gardener, wearing their stuff. <laughs> and then you have the guy from Repair Shop. Is it? Are we talking that 
sort of TV celebrities are saving small brands in the clothing industry? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's great when it happens occasionally. Um, but we've we've not gone out of our way to get kind of influencers or, or celebrities wearing the stuff. Um, yeah, because, it's, yeah. It's, it's hard to gift, you know. I feel like we had few uh, celeb kind of, you know, people then media, you know, asking us for kind of yeah, giving them some of our clothes for the event that they could then keep. And that's just, you know, a big ask for us as we are a very small company. Um, we've got a very limited amount of makers on board. Um, and I don't, I, you know, we prioritize serving our clients above anything else. Um, the repair shop happened and it was brilliant and I, we felt so proud and, and it was, you know, the reaction after it was incredible. However, it's not our, it's not our priority, I think, the, you know, influencer. Yeah. Our priority is our clients. Yeah, exactly. We don't need millions of clients right now. We need hundreds. Hundreds is, is really nice and that's a good size of business for us and, you know, it doesn't need to get a lot bigger than that for us to actually have a really nice life out of it. And that's the idea. We don't want to grow into a big brand with, you know, hundreds of stores <laughs> and, a, you know, probably be be bought by some massive uh, yeah, corporation. That sounds really stressful. We want to continue on making and keeping it small. But having enough clients to have a very good life. Yeah, and working with other makers and, and having a very kind of organic feel to the way that we work, I think is our, our ambition Yeah, with it. That sounds like a really good point to um, to finish up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do, do you have any sort of uh, closing words, any uh, wisdom you'd like to impart, any new products uh, coming up the pipeline? New products. There's a few things that we're working on at the moment. We're updating a couple of the existing shirt patterns just to tweak them a little bit. And what else? We're going to have linen shirts coming. Yeah. Uh, we've got that amazing gilet. A corduroy gilet that uh, we've released over Easter, and yeah, if you haven't seen, have a look because it's it's worth it, and it's really yeah, just a perfect dog walking look. Yeah, <laughs> so many pockets. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, other than that, just get in touch if you've got any questions because we're always happy to talk. Uh, it's not only about buying from us, but also building community. So we just love to exchange ideas around clothing and give any advice if anyone wants our advice. Yeah, uh, it's you know, always nice to chat to people. It's always nice to chat to people. So get in touch. We've got our website uh, you can visit in our Instagram. So um, website is pretty easy to remember. It's astateofnature.com. And then on Instagram, uh, you just put a state of nature and you can find us there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I enjoyed this a lot. It's yeah, great to so hear we. news news from Hackney. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so, much. so much for having us. Okay. Bye bye from me. Bye bye. <laughs>
And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.